0: Uh, This past Friday, we remembered uh, the anniversary, the 77th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. And I want to introduce you to uh, a man who is the man who uh, actually uh, planned and led this deadly air attack uh, that took place on December 7th, 1941. His name is Mitsuo Fuchida. That's a picture of him there. He planned and led the attack on Pearl Harbor, and astonishingly, even though his plane was hit 21 times, he still made it back to his aircraft carrier. And in fact, he escaped, several time, escaped death several times during the war. On August 5th, 1945, he was attending a military conference in a place called Hiroshima when he was ordered to report very quickly to Tokyo. He left Hiroshima, and the very next day, the U.S. dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima. Well, Fujita became part of a team sent back to uh, Hiroshima to assess the damage. Every single member of that team died of radiation poisoning except Mitsuo Fujita. It's clear that God was preserving his life for a purpose. And so Fujita found the answer to that in 1948 at a Tokyo train station where an American missionary was handing out pamphlets entitled, I Was a, pris- a Prisoner of Japan. It was written by this man, Jacob DeShazer, who was one of General Doolittle's raiders who bombed Tokyo in 1942 in retaliation for Pearl Harbor. And if you, if you actually saw the, the Ben Affleck movie, Pearl Harbor, uh, you know that several of those men landed in China and yet were still captured by the Japanese. Well, Jacob DeShazer was one of those men who landed in China after bombing Tokyo, and then he was captured by the Japanese and spent over 40 months in a, in a, in a prisoner of war camp He grew very hardened toward his captors until one of his Japanese captors gave him a Bible. Just think about that for a second. He came back to the United States, DeShazer did, after being released, and he said, if I could ever meet the man that planned and led the attack on Pearl Harbor, I'd kill him with my bare hands. Well, then, after DeShazer met Christ, was transformed by the gospel, he became a missionary to, you guessed it, Japan. Going back to Japan, he led over 30,000 Japanese men and women to Christ, one of them being Mitsuo Fuchida. Mitsuo Fuchida and Jacob de were reunited, and in 1950, the two former enemies embraced each other as brothers in Christ and spent the rest of their lives witnessing together to the power of Christ and to the need For gospel centered forgiveness. Now, I don't know if you heard that story this past Friday or if you've ever heard that story before, but this helps us understand why we've been focusing our attention the way we have this year on the story of the Bible. The big picture story of the Bible helps us understand that this is the kind of God that we serve. To take the man who planned the attack on Pearl Harbor, to save him out of darkness, to take a man who retaliated because of that attack on Pearl Harbor and was a POW for over 40 months, to take him, as hardened as he was, to have him receive a Bible by a Japanese prison guard and for him to receive Christ. And then for the two to come together as one to declare that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. For the Japanese, for the American, for the Jew, for the Gentile, alike. That's the God that we celebrate. The power of God at work in people just like us. Broken people. People who recognize their need for a Savior. And the good news is, is that even today, if we would draw near to Him in truth, that He would draw near to us to give us the peace that only Christ can give us. The the kind of peace that comes when Emmanuel comes into your life. And so that's how we can celebrate Christmas, celebrate missions, celebrate the, this, this His Story sermon series, and come to the book of Hebrews this morning to study through it at this Christmas time. Because the power of God is at work, changing hearts, making brothers out of enemies, and calling us to live for a greater purpose. The pinnacle of all of the story of God is Jesus. We're living on the other side. You think about the Old Testament as climbing that mountain, and then Jesus came, the pinnacle of God's revelations we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 1. And we're living in the wake of that. And God has called us to be agents of restoration in the midst of that. And so we need to hear more stories about, uh, about people like Jacob DeShazer and Mitsu of Fuchida so that we can believe that God wants to do it again through us. And so what, what you're going to hear today from the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. Better than what? You fill in the blank. He's better than it it all. And if Jesus is better, then Christmas takes on a new meaning, doesn't it? If Jesus is better, then my enemies look different. If Jesus is better, then I can have hope. And that's what you're being invited to believe today as we open to the book of Hebrews. And so this is the reason that the book is called the book of Hebrews, because Jesus is better than anything else in the world, and the author was writing to a group of Hebrews so that they would believe these things. And so let's dive in and let's try to understand this book that many people don't understand Just to be honest, it's one of the most confusing uh, books in the New Testament because the context is so foreign to what we're used to. And so it's going to take some setup for us to understand this book today. Now, we honestly don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. It's put at the end of the Pauline epistles because of this. Because some people think that Paul wrote it, but are unsure because Paul doesn't mention himself in here if he does. Some people don't think that Paul wrote it. Many people think that Paul didn't write it, but that it was maybe Luke or Silas or Apollos. But we don't know. We don't know who wrote it. But what we do know is that whoever wrote it had an immense knowledge of the Old Testament, particularly the book of Leviticus, and that some, it was someone who intimately knew the audience to whom he was writing, that they also were intimately familiar with the Old Testament, so that he could just quote it literally in almost every other verse. The, the book of Hebrews is called the book of Hebrews not because it says a letter to the Hebrews, but because the people who received this letter would to have had, had to have had such a, a, a complete knowledge of the Old Testament priesthood, sacrificial system, the Old Testament books, the Book of Leviticus from beginning to end, they would have to know it so well to understand Hebrews, which is maybe why we don't. Because Leviticus, I mean, it's literally like trying to trying to crack a code. I mean, we we don't. And, and I, if you if you need help with Leviticus, you can go back to when we preached on it, or I preached on it earlier in the year, and it was a it was a very good study through that, and that's on our website at fbcabvill.net. But we know that it was written to a community of Jewish people, Jewish believers and unbelievers, before A.D. 70. Now, A.D. 70, something major happened in the Jewish mindset that you all need to know. And if you, if you, if you don't mind writing in your Bible, I'd encourage you to write that above the title, written before A.D. 70, when the Jerusalem temple was destroyed. See, in A.D. 70, the Jerusalem temple was destroyed by Rome. And you say, well, what does that have to do with anything? If this person with this intimate knowledge of the Old Testament is writing to a group of Hebrew Christians, after the temple was destroyed, he would have mentioned it. He would have used that as a foundational argument for his writing, but he didn't. So it must have not happened yet. So that's why we think it happened before A.D. 70, when the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. But it is clear that leading up to A.D. 70, that Jewish people were enduring immense persecution, and that comes out in the letter to the Hebrews. These people are enduring immense persecution at the hands of their neighbors. But one of the most important things that you can understand as we study the book of Hebrews is that the writer is addressing three separate groups, and this is critical. So once again, if you don't mind writing in your Bible, write these three groups at the top margin. Because if you miss this, then you will come out with some really wacky doctrine when you're reading Hebrews like some have and thinking that people can lose their salvation. People draw that doctrine from the book of Hebrews, but if you understand that there are three different groups to whom the author is writing, then it makes perfect sense. The first group would be Hebrew Christians. These are people that were saved by uh, missionary apostles who came and preached the word to them, and they trusted Christ, but they were still immature believers. And the author writes to them to help them understand uh, that they need to let go of the the spiritually powerless rituals and traditions of of Judaism and embrace Jesus Christ alone and hold on to that belief in Jesus Christ alone. But then there was a second group, and that was Hebrew unbelievers who were convinced. Now, convinced of what? They were convinced that Jesus was Messiah, They were convinced that Jesus was the one that the Old Testament prophets had had foretold. They were convinced that all of these things pointed, uh, all these things from the Old Testament pointed to Jesus, and they believed that he died for sins. But they just didn't believe that Jesus died for their sins. You see, you can all have all the head knowledge you want. You can come to church year after year after year. And, and be able to score 100% on every Facebook uh, uh, Bible trivia quiz or, or whatever you've got. But that doesn't equate to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And maybe, that would, maybe, maybe these two groups are represented in this room today. There are some of you in here for sure that you've, that you've been saved by the grace of God, and you need encouragement today. And then there are others of you in here, maybe you're a member of this church, or maybe you've been a member of a church for a really long time, but you've never had an intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ where you treasure Him on a daily basis. You've never had a vibrant relationship. Maybe you've never been discipled. Maybe, maybe you've, you've, you've grown up in church, but you've never actually committed your life to Jesus Christ. You would fall into group two. And what you're going to hear today is there are distinct warnings for people in this category. And we'll get to those warnings in a second. But there's a third group. The first two groups are focused on heavily, but the third group are Hebrew non-Christians, once again, unbelievers, who were not convinced of the gospel's truth, but they had some exposure to it, and they were a part of the community there as well. They weren't members of the church. They were just part of the community there. But to all of these groups, the author has one message. And that is Jesus is better. In fact, I think it'd just be a good idea since I'm going to be saying this over and over and over again. And we're, you know, the spirit of Christmas. I'm not going to make you sing it or anything. okay? but let's just say that together. Jesus is better. One, two, three. Jesus is better. Okay, that was really good. Let's try it again, though. One, two, three. Jesus is better. He is better. That is the message of Hebrews. So once again, if you don't mind writing your Bible, then right above the title, the the title, Hebrews, Jesus is better better. And I pray that by the end of this message that you will see that and you will believe that because that is the message of Hebrews. And it's all summed up in the first three verses. So look at Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. The writer begins, he says, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so this verse really does encapsulate the entire message of the book of Hebrews. All that we studied in the Old Testament, the writer of Hebrews would tell us, was preparation for Jesus. Everything that you studied, every character, every, every, uh, every Levitical ritual, uh, all of the talk about being clean and unclean, all of the stories about the temple, all of the stories about the tabernacle, all of the stories about the prophets, every single one of those were pointing in some way to Jesus Christ. Jesus himself modeled this for us when, when he met the two men on, on the Emmaus Road in Luke 24. And these two men were confused that the Messiah, Jesus, had died, and they didn't know know that Jesus was walking beside them because he was dead. They didn't know that he had been raised to life. And so Jesus walks with them, and it says that as he walked with them, that he told them all that the Old Testament had told, all that had been written in the Old Testament concerning himself, beginning with the law and the prophets. And so Jesus on the Emmaus road goes point by point with these men back and says, Look, guys, it was all pointing to the Messiah. And then Jesus disappears from their sight. They, their eyes are open. They recognize that it was him. And they see, wow, how did we miss that? So if maybe today you're hearing that for the first time or you've never really studied the Bible that way, the Old Testament that way, maybe, maybe you've just looked at it from the standpoint of, you know, I'm David, and I've got this giant in front of me, and that's my Goliath, and, and, and you just kind of look at the Old Testament that way. That's not the starting point, friends. The starting point is, what does this, this part of the Old Testament teach me about Jesus, about who Jesus is? And see, that's what the author of, the Hebrew, uh, of, of Hebrews is telling us. That the Old Testament, the entirety of it, was pointing to Jesus. And that when Jesus came, He came as the supreme revelation of God's character. He came as the supreme revelation of God's glory. He came as the supreme revelation of God's purpose. That He is the most important person in all of creation because He is the Creator. That if you want to see God, then look at Him because He is the perfect representation that if you want proof of His power, look at creation around you and how the sun continues to rise and set each day. If you want proof of His atonement, recognize that, that as the atoning sacrifice and the great high priest that He set down, which means that His work is finished. Jesus is better. So cling to nothing else but Him. And there are five areas, and this is, this is basically the, a broad outline that you'll see in your little handout that was in your bulletin. that that there are these five sections that because these are the Hebrew Christians, because they're very familiar with the Old Testament, because they're very familiar with the Old Testament, the Levitical sacrificial system, the author goes through and he gives five different ways, five different areas where Jesus is better than part of that Old Testament system. And so I'm just going to give them to you. Five areas specific to the Hebrew culture where Jesus is better. First of all, Uh, we saw Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, that Jesus is supreme. Chapters 1 and 2 broadly show us that Jesus is better than angels. You say, well, why was that a big deal? Why start there? Well, he wants them to understand that because the Jewish people believed that when Moses received the law on Mount Sinai, that it was the angels of God who were conveying that law to him. I mean, we know that first... uh, that first, the, the first two tablets, so the first tablet with the Ten Commandments on it was chiseled out by the hand of God, right? And then Moses got angry uh, and broke that, those tablets, and then it came up, and Moses had to chisel the other two out himself, I guess. But they believed that the angels were the ones speaking on behalf of God to Moses there on Mount Sinai. And so the first thing that the, the writer wants them to understand, oh, guys, Jesus is better than those angels. And isn't it funny today That there's still this infatuation with angels, even though we don't have that same kind of, you know, that same belief that the angels were on Mount Sinai giving uh, Moses the the testimony of the Old Covenant? Let me tell you, don't fall into the trap of believing that angels are better than the one mediator between God and men, that is the man Christ Jesus. Don't don't fall into the trap of of, of buying these books that, that tell you that they're, you know that you've all got this guardian angel and there's this angel psalm that you can pray and here's this angel prayer that's embroidered on a throw blanket and if you pay three easy payments of 19.99 then we'll send it to you, you know. Don't, don't, don't fall for that stuff. Don't fall for it. Listen, first Timothy chapter two said it very clearly. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There is one mediator. That means you don't need an angel to go before you to God. And can I tell you this too? Because I think it's very important just highlighting the section about angels. We don't become angels when we get to heaven. The the people that go on before you, not that they're not um, not present with God, not that they don't have a special place with God. They do, and it's better than angels. You see, we'll, we'll be human in heaven when we receive our new body. We won't be angels. I know I know it might be funny to think about me with my little cherub wings flapping around and you know playing my heart with a little diaper on one day. That's not what's gonna happen. We're not those precious moments, little angel figurines when we go to heaven. It just it's not that way. We we sometimes use the word angel to describe people because they we say they're angelic, and that, that's not bad. But at the same time, we need to recognize that there is actually a satanic force behind this idea that people become angels because Satan wants to do anything he can to get you to fix your eyes on anything but Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is better. You see it? Jesus is better. Don't fix your eyes on angels because Jesus is better. Chapters 3 and 4 are about Jesus being better than Moses and the promised land because Jesus is a better leader that gives us a better rest. You see, the promised land was idealized by uh, these these Hebrew people that were living after the Old Testament Israelites had gotten into the promised land. And they kept thinking, well, I'm going to get back to the promised land. I'm going to get back to the promised land. I'm going to get back to the promised land. And he's saying, if you're hoping for another Old Testament promised land then you need to take your eyes off of that and you need to fix your eyes on the fact that Jesus doesn't have a promised land like you're thinking about, but he has a rest like you've always wanted. He's got a Sabbath rest that will last for all eternity. And for those who walk with him now, they can taste and see it now. Jesus is better than Moses because he's a better leader. And Jesus is better than the promised land because he gives a better rest. In chapters five through seven, he says that Jesus is better than the priests, and specifically this priest called Melchizedek. Okay, Now, all of you have always been wondering how to say this name. Uh, it's in the book of Hebrews. It's in the Old Testament. Melchizedek. Everybody say that with me. Melchizedek. Don't be scared of it. One, two, three. Melchizedek. Right. Melchizedek was this very uh, enigmatic Old Testament priest of Jerusalem. And when he was there and he was... Um, He was being honored by the Old Testament fathers. And what uh, basically this this writer knew that these people looked at Melchizedek as the greatest of all great high priests. But the author had just said in chapter 4 that Jesus is the greatest high priest. And so he launches in in chapters 5 through 7 that Jesus is better than all the priests in the Old Testament, that Jesus is better than Melchizedek. Because every other one of those priests had to atone for their own sins before they atoned for your sins, before they offered sacrifice for your sins. Guess what? Jesus is better than that because Jesus didn't have to atone for his own sin. Jesus laid down his life as the perfect sacrifice so that you could be reconciled to God. And so Jesus is better than those priests and that priesthood and specifically Melchizedek. Then chapters 8 through 10... Jesus is better than all the sacrifices and the old covenant because he is the once and for all sacrifice. If you remember when we were re- reading through Leviticus, it was like morning sacrifice, evening sacrifice, special sacrifices, uh, multiple trips each year to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices, and you had to buy these things, and the priests would go and they'd slaughter it. And it was just this really awful, bloody picture. And God says, I- I know you may not like that, but that gives you the kind of picture that I want you to understand how precious it is that Jesus has His blood shed once and for all. He had His blood shed once and for all. There's not a morning and an evening sacrifice when it comes to Jesus because Jesus is better. His blood is, speaks a, a better word over us, and His promises endure throughout the toughest seasons of Life. And that's actually what chapters 11 through 13 are about, how Jesus is better in the lives of his people. And it's in that section where the famous uh, Hall of Faith chapter is, because Jesus is better in the lives of his people. And when people are truly walking in uh, with Jesus, then people see and savor the Son of God in your life. We see that in chapter 12 there, chapter 11, 12. But I want to take really just the rest of our time, and I want, I want you to look at these five, I mean, these six specific warnings. Because at the end of each one of these sections, uh, there's a warning related to what has been said. And so, just very quickly, I want you to, to track with me through these six warnings, and it might even be helpful to you if you wrote the groups above the title group one being the Hebrew Christians, group two being the Hebrew non-Christians or unbelievers who were convinced, and then group three being the Hebrew non-believers who were not convinced, it'll help if you know these warnings, who they're being focused uh, at. And so the first warning that he gives at the the beginning of chapter 2, and I'll read it, is uh, the warning, don't drift. Don't drift. So look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The writer is saying, don't drift. Don't drift from what you've heard. It's true. Take the next step and commit because Jesus is the fullest and final revelation of God. Don't neglect this great salvation. And there is a, there's, a, there's a very stern word to be said to American Christianity in that, in that warning. Don't treat Christianity like it's just an appendage. Don't, don't treat it like it's just something that you can add on to your life in times of need. Don't treat, it like, like, don't treat Jesus like he's king at Christmas, but, but like your distant backyard neighbor who you never see the rest of the year. Don't, don't, don't treat Jesus that way. He's worthy of so much more than that. Don't drift away from the truth that you've heard, but commit to it. Secondly, though, don't disbelieve. Don't disbelieve. Look at chapter 3, verses 7 through 14. Don't disbelieve. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So take care, brothers, lest there be any of you in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That warning is given to believers. And you say, wait, Ryan, I, I thought you said that, that we can't fall away, that we can't lose our salvation. I'm telling you that you can't. But do you want to know what the, this section of Hebrews is warning believers about? It's telling you that the the first and greatest measure of your walk with the Lord is not your feelings. Let me say that again. The way you feel on a Sunday morning shouldn't determine whether you come to church or not. If we are rooted and grounded in emotionalism when it comes to our walk with the Lord, then we'll never stand on truth. We will only stand on our emotion. But if we stand on truth and let truth preach to our emotions, which is the way it should be, then you will find yourself holding fast to the cross of Jesus Christ and to the promises of God through different seasons of your life. Many of you have lived that out. You've held fast to Him, even even when you didn't feel like it. Even if you weren't sure that this whole Christianity thing or God thing was real, you might have felt like your prayers were just bouncing off the ceiling. You might have felt overrun, but you kept clinging, and you were diligent to keep pursuing and seeking. That is true Christianity. Because you know where your hope will ultimately be found. It's not about how you feel. It's not about how the songs make you feel. It's not about how you feel even when you gather in this room. It's about where you're standing. And if you're standing on the solid rock of the promises of Jesus Christ, then you will endure because you are being held up by the strength of Him who is at work within you. Friends, there is no greater hope than that. That's the warning given to Christians in chapter 3. To phrase the journey song, don't stop believing, right? (laughs) I mean, we could just break out into it right now. That, that's essentially what he's saying. Don't stop believing. Don't, don't forsake. Don't forsake because that steadfastness to continue is what real belief is. Third, though, third, don't degenerate the basic principles about Christ. Look at chapter 5, verse 11. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. He's talking obviously, to these Hebrew Christian I mean Hebrew non-Christians who had become enlightened, they had uh, understood some of the first things about Jesus, but had not taken the step to put their faith in him. It says, "For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child." But solid food is for the mature and those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. He's saying specifically in the next six verses, he's saying there, he's warning them, those who are convinced about the basics of Christ, they've been enlightened, but they never taken that step of faith to put their, their faith fully in Him. He's telling them another, another warning. He's saying you need to go ahead and take that step to respond to Him, to believe in Him, to commit to Him. And then we come to the next three of these, uh, these six. Second, uh, uh, fourthly, don't despise. Turn over to chapter 10. T- chapter 10, verse 26. Don't despise. What should we not despise? We should not despise the truth. This is a warning to believers to hate sin and to kill sin. It says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Basically, if the truth is preached to you so that you would reject sin and walk forward in righteousness, but you choose not to follow that truth, then that means that you will continue in sin rather than live a life of worship. Just like we've seen over the New Testament, Paul talking like uh, about in places like 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 18 and other places like that if you if you hear the truth on a regular basis and yet you choose not to put it into practice in your life then you'll eventually become hardened even to the preciousness of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and who else is going to die for you who who else is going to who else is going to help you find spiritual life Jesus is the only way because he's better But if you don't obey Him, if you don't follow Him, then in experiencing the truth, those experiences will will become rarer and rarer and rarer because you've dulled His voice. Fifth warning, don't devalue the grace of God. This is a warning to convinced unbelievers that today's awareness of your need to repent may not be there tomorrow. He says, why are you continuing to sit on the fence? And then lastly, don't depart from the one who is speaking. Both of those are found... In chapter 12, both of those groups, groups two and three, he's basically, and, and this, is, this is something that we need so often. This is the James 4 mentality that people just say they put off fully committing to Jesus Christ because they say, well, I'll do it tomorrow. Or I'll do it when this thing in my life gets fixed. Or I'll do it when this area of my family gets fixed. Or I'm going to wait until this area of my life gets solidified to really do what God's called me to do. And what, what the author is saying is, you're not promised tomorrow. If God's calling you to repent today, and guess when you need to repent today? If God's calling you to obey today, guess when you need to obey today? Because you might not have tomorrow, and God wants to use you now. Jesus is better. He brings us better things, like a better hope that is firm, a better covenant of grace, a better sacrifice that's one for, once for all, a better priestly ministry that knows right where we are, a better word that speaks peace, a better possession that is eternal, and a better life that is enduring. Let me illustrate what, what the author of the Hebrews is trying to say just in a very simple way. There was a man who took his young son, this is a true story, to the carnival, kind of like the peanut festival for his birthday, and he picked, uh, his son was allowed to pick six friends to bring to the carnival with him because, you know, money and everything, right? It's expensive. And so they had these seven boys. This man has these seven boys, and the man's name was Ron. Ron, so there you go. It's not this Ron, but it's another Ron. Uh, And he, he actually said, okay, it wasn't armband night, so he had to buy tickets. And so he bought all this big roll of tickets, right? And he, at every ride, these boys would run up to every ride, and he'd pull off seven tickets. It was one ticket per ride. He'd pull off seven tickets. And the little boys would go, and they'd hand the ticket to the guy, taking the tickets, and then they'd all go get on the ride. And then when they got off the Ferris wheel, they'd had to ride with some kids that weren't in their group. All of a sudden, Ron noticed that there was this eighth kid that came up after the seven. You know, so his son comes up, hand out, gets a ticket, and then the six boys come up, hand out, gets a ticket. Well, all of a sudden, this little boy that Ron had not seen the rest of the night comes up. And he kind of asked him for a ticket. And Ron looked down and said, who are you? (laughs) And the little boy said, I'm Johnny, right? Because every kid in the sermon illustration is named Johnny. (laughs) And Ron said, who are you, Johnny? Johnny said, I'm your son's new friend. (laughs) And he said, you would give me a ticket. Ron said, do you think I gave him one? Absolutely. Absolutely he did. Why? Because of the son. Because of the son. When you come through the son, then you're in the family. And when you're in the family, you have access to all that is offered to the family. You see, those six boys had become like brothers to little, the little boy who was having his birthday. And when Johnny came along and saw an opportunity to join in because of the invitation of the son, he jumped at it. And the book of Hebrews is saying, my friends, if you've heard the voice of the one calling to you to come and be joined to the family of the son, don't sit on the fence, don't delay, don't say no, Because in delaying and sitting on the fence and in saying no, you are rejecting life itself. It's not about a carnival ride, but it's about coming and joining together with Jesus Emmanuel, the Prince of Peace, the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. See, that's the invitation of the book of Hebrews, and that's the invitation to you today, is that maybe if you've been sitting on the fence, if you've been wondering about this whole christianity thing and you're in that maybe group two that you've come to church multiple times but you're and, and and maybe you even say that you believe in jesus and that you 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 believe that jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins i would say to you if that's true or have you appropriated by faith that power of the gospel for yourself Are you walking in that power? Are you keeping your peace and your hope and your atoning sacrifice? Are you keeping Jesus, who is better, at an arm's distance? Because you know, you know that He demands to be your treasure. Why would you do that? But I recognize that many in this room that you have put your faith in Jesus and that you just need to be reminded and encouraged that Jesus is... Better don't you love Hebrews twelve, Hebrews eleven and twelve? This hall of faith, these people who, who radically follow Jesus, and they're not known for anything else except for their faith. Listen, I know many many of you that forty five years from now you are going to look back and you are going to be telling your grandkids, you are going to say, we had this devilishly handsome pastor named Ryan Johnson. He was a snappy dresser. He had a beard that was you know just wonderfully groomed. Not really. Uh, He was hilarious all the time. All of his jokes just cracked everybody up. Right? No, no, of course not. You're not going to say any of those things. I don't want to be remembered for any of those things. Do you? I mean, honestly. I don't want my grandkids to celebrate how I dressed or what I owned. (laughs) How much money I had. I want them to remember that I love Jesus. And you know the people who overflow that from their lives are the people who by faith wake up every day and say, Jesus is better. He's better than anything I'm going to face today. He's better. He's better than anything this world could give me. He's better. And so today I wonder if you can say that. If that's the way you live your life, if that's what you'll be remembered for my prayer is today that if you have any doubts about that I'll be right down front and you can come and and you can get that resolved we can have a conversation and, and maybe you've been sitting on the fence and you can take that step to say yes to Jesus and become a disciple of Christ but today if you just need to be encouraged like I often do every week as I come to preach to you I need to be encouraged these messages encourage me they remind me Jesus is better Jesus is better, Ryan. And so keep walking with him through every season of life. Jesus is better. And so my prayer is is that as I pray and we begin this time of invitation that you would just make that your simple profession. Believer, unbeliever, today you can make a decision to say Jesus is better with your life. I pray that you would do that. Let's pray together.